The job of the exorcist is not to cast out the devil. The job of the exorcist is to find out why is the devil there? What rights has he gained? And then it's the exorcist's job to aid the victim in rescinding those rights. Why is the devil allowed to harm us in the first place? Hello, my friends. So many of you enjoyed the show we had with Father Carlos Martins, one of the main exorcists in the church right now. He runs The Exorcist Files, uh, which is a production actually asked for in a way by the Vatican that shows what goes on in exorcism and it, true exorcism, what it's all about. That show went totally viral before, so we had him back on. This time, he's talking to us about a new book released by Tan about probably the most famous exorcist that's lived in the past, I don't know if it's a century or what, but Father Gabriel Amorth was the chief exorcist for Rome for decades and decades. The, the book is called The Official Biography of the Pope's Exorcist, and it's by Italian author Domenico Agasso, available through 10 books. Father Carlos Martin, The Exorcist, is here to talk to us about that. This is The John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Hey friends, this July, we at LifeSite are celebrating 25 years of service to life, faith, family, and freedom with a gala in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So especially for those of you who couldn't join us in the United States, LifeSite is gathering our whole team and a few very special guests in the pro-life and pro-family movement for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at our newly announced 25th anniversary Canadian gala. LifeSite's star video reporter Jim Hale will be there with an on-stage special with the 16-year-old Canadian pro-family hero, Josh Alexander. Experience LifeSite's Faith and Reason show live with Father James Altman and Liz Yor. And you'll be able to interact with our reporters from all over the world, including U.S. Bureau Chief Doug Mainwaring, Canadian reporter Anthony Murdoch, and Rome correspondent Michael Haynes. You'll also hear keynotes from LifeSite co-founder Steve Jelsevac and myself. So RSVP for the 25th anniversary Canadian Gala now. And don't miss the opportunity to get a live, in-person, studio experience of LifeSite's top news show that broadcasts every Friday at 8 p.m., Faith and Reason. Seating is very limited, so RSVP and get your tickets today for LifeSite's 25th anniversary Canadian Gala in the beautiful Hilton Toronto Markham Hotel this July 18th. To buy tickets for the 25th Anniversary Canadian Gala, visit gala25can.lifesitenews.com. I look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. Father Martin, so good to be with you again. Yeah, thank you very much for having me again. Father, if you could uh, launch us off, please, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. First of all, many people will have seen our old show and know you from your show, from the Exorcist Files, but just give us a little brief thing for people who might not know. Who are you? What do you do? My name is Father Carlos Martins. Uh, most people know me uh, through either my work on relics, which I run a, a ministry, that uh, a Vatican-sponsored ministry, where I travel the world giving people an experience of God through the relics of his saints, or more recently through my podcast, The Exorcist Files. Uh, so I took my case studies 
as an exorcist, which I, I function in the capacity of one and have for the better part of 20 years, that podcast has has, has become very popular. Uh, and if uh, it's available anywhere where you get your podcasts, if you don't know what a podcast is or even what I'm talking about, visit exorcistfiles.tv and you'll get all the instructions you need to access it. Let's talk about Father Gabriel Amorth. Many people will remember him. Some won't. So tell us, first of all, who is Father Gabriel Amorth? Father Gabriel Amorth was the chief exorcist for the Diocese of Rome. Uh, he died just, uh, gosh, over seven years ago. Uh, he was uh, quite renowned. You mentioned at the start he was the most famous exorcist perhaps in the last hundred years. I would argue he was the most famous in the past 500 years, probably not since the, the days of St. Francis Borgia. And the reason why is... A, he was very competent. He was very good. He was a great man of God and renowned for uh, his his saintliness, but also the fact that the the very order that he belonged to, the Paulines, part of their charism is communication and evangelization through media, and he certainly did that. Uh, he was a very published author. He published his experiences, his teachings on exorcism. Uh, he did that so well that he became known the world the world over. One of the things that happened in the church, in fact, we're taping this actually on the Feast of Saints, Peter and Paul, and it's quite something because I wanted to ask you a question that related to 1917, uh, excuse me, 1972, on this very day, Pope Paul VI talked about something in relation to Rome, as Father Amarth was the chief exorcist of Rome, but he said this, he said, and I quote, from some fissure, the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God. There is doubt, uncertainty, problems, unrest, dissatisfaction, confrontation. There is no longer trust of the church, end quote. So, first of all, I'd love to hear your take on that. But with regard to an exorcist, their role, and what you would hear as an exorcist, had you been around in that day and heard that, what would that mean to you? There's a priest I know, a really saintly priest, and, and we talked about this one time, and he has really a definite opinion uh, as to the words of, of, of Pope Paul VI and, and, and how, how diagnostic and prophetic they were. Diagnostic in the sense that when everything toppled kind of after the Second Vatican Council, you know, no one could have foreseen that. But it also pointed to the fact that what seemed rosy and good leading up to the council, churches were full, there were lots of vocations. Uh, the very fact that all of these things toppled so quickly, the bottom fell out from under the vocations, the people of God, you know, there, there was a wholesale movement to questioning and doubt, and, and the fact that, you know, contraception was embraced. And, and many people in the church, many clergy, in, in my opinion, I think most of the clergy in the church, most, certainly not all, are not pro-life. Like, they, they, well, you know, like, we, we look at the circumstances of people, and it's really hard, and therefore, it's okay to murder a preborn life. Like I, I mean, I encounter clergy like this all the time. There was a rot that was there, but it was beneath the surface. And then the conditions 
created following the council just kind of exposed to that. So he believes, this, this saintly priest I know, that the, the fallout was God's retribution to expose the rot that was there. And the words of Paul VI are prophetic in the sense that they have identified what is the case for so many people in the church, so Catholics. So in the past, you disagreed with the church, you left the church. But the disagreeers, the, the discontents, the malcontents have remained in the church now. This is different. You, you have theologians, you have clergy teaching in the name of the church, and their teaching is at variance with the church. This is a new thing. This is a satanic thing. Uh, th this, this is an act of rebellion, not just a rejection of the teaching on a personal level, but I want to change God's church. This is a satanic thing. Those are strong words. And we do see that. And thank you for saying it because it, it gives a lot of the faithful comfort in that really we're not going crazy. That's what it feels like. From the pews, it feels like we're going crazy. And yet a lot of us fight it also, not only for ourselves, but especially for our children. That's, that's where really you can't, as a parent, you can't sit by and let it go and just wonder, oh, well, whatever, because you know it's, it's harming your children and perhaps their eternal lives. So there's no way to sit and, and let it happen. Why now? Why a book right now about Father Gabriel Amorth, Rome's chief exorcist, as you said, probably one of the most famous exorcists in the last 500 years. Uh, I, you know, why now and what difference do you think it's going to make? This past year, this past April, there was a movie released called The Pope's Exorcist. It was released by Sony Pictures and it was starring Russell Crowe, the, the, the famous actor, the Oscar winning actor. Uh, and, you know, to put it to put it simply and frankly, that movie exploited the name of Father Gabriel Amorth. That movie is loosely presented as an exorcism movie, but it's done so in the horror genre. Everything in it is make-believe. Uh, Russell Crowe plays Father Gabriel Amorth, but it is not true to life in any way. And, and Father, Father Amorth would have been repulsed uh, that such a movie, that, that he was being exploited to portray such a message, which was the antithesis of what he spent his life doing. This is what you get when you're a famous person, as Father Amorth was, and you know, the result of which being, because of freedom of expression, somebody can create a movie about your life. So as a result of that, it became necessary to clear the air and clarify not just the church's teaching on exorcism, but the name of this great saintly priest, uh, Father Gabriel Amorth, who, who spent his life, who spent uh, uh, decades combating evil and educating on evil in a way like no exorcist had ever done before his time. Let's unpack that a little bit because exorcisms, the last time you were on my show, you explained exorcisms do have some of those very, um, you know, levitation and the lights going on and off and can be super cold in the room. It doesn't make any sense. So there are those kind of manifestations, yet that's not the heart of it. Tell us, if you will, how the movie exploited and where it got it wrong and what the truth actually is. The job of the exorcist is not 
to cast out the devil. The job of the exorcist is to find out why is the devil there? What rights has he gained? And then it's the exorcist's job to aid the victim in rescinding those rights. So we need to dispel in our minds the, the, the concept that the exorcist comes in and, and he's combating the devil with a Latin ritual in one hand, a crucifix in the other. And then when he puts down the crucifix only to pick up the aspergillum where he sprinkles holy water on the victim. In other words, it's not a battle where each one is trying to hit the other one over the head. The, 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 it's a battle in the sense that the exorcist is trying to get access to the victim, to the human being whose consciousness is suppressed, and getting the human being to reverse decisions that were made that got him or her ensnared in this in, in possession. Uh, now, if the possession resulted from, say, a generational sin where, where there was a curse instituted by a family member, and now this one, for whatever reason, has been ensnared, then, okay, there isn't a particular sin he or she has done that has to be reversed, but there may be a claim, a claim as, as to the identity of being a son or a daughter of God, that that has to be done, that, that, that sin in general, the sin, the repetitive sin in my family line, I reject that. I, 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 I claim freedom purchased by Jesus Christ in his sacrifice and reject the constant rebellion that has repeated itself in my family line. So in other words, the, the exorcist has to diagnose how is the devil manifesting here? Why is he manifesting himself in this way? And then he has to get to the victim to get the victim's cooperation to institute something new through the grace of God. So, so to phrase it differently, an exorcist is an expert in relationship, and he needs to get the victim to abandon one relationship in favor of another. That is what exorcism is. There has to be a replacing of relationship. It's not just denying the devil. It's filling in the, the space the devil is occupying with Jesus Christ. The outward manifestations are there in terms of what the priest does. He does use a missile, does pray prayers, does use the holy water, does use the crucifix. That plays in, but as you said, that's not the meat of it. That is part of it. Maybe you can go into that a little bit. The manifestations of the devil, the devil will manifest. But I'll tell you this, um, as one one's career as an exorcist, if we can speak like that, as 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 one gains experience year by year as an exorcist, the diabolical signs begin to diminish. Uh, and, and they're initially there that the devil kind of uses these parlor tricks uh, to try to manipulate you into a place of fear. Oh my gosh, look at the power of the devil. He's 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 having this this small child is walking up the wall backwards and then walking across the ceiling as if the law of gravity didn't apply to him. The first time you would see something like that, the hair on the back of your head might stand up. What about the 89th time that you see that? What about the 289th time that you see that? Your reaction's gonna be different. And at a, at a certain point, seeing that isn't even gonna stop the yawn that you feel like letting out of your mouth, right? And, that, and that's, just, that's just a fact, we get used to reality. So as, the effect of these parlor tricks don't 
produce what the devil wants to produce. He abandons them because um, at the end of the day, they're not they're not achieving what he wants them to achieve, and that is making you afraid. And so he doesn't spend his energy on those. Uh, he spends his energy on on just resisting what you are doing as an exorcist. Uh, so Father Father Amorth in the book, he talks about in his very first exorcism, he saw levitation. Uh, so the, the victim was levitated into the air, um, was suspended by nothing. He never saw it again in his entire career. As time goes on, those extraordinary manifestations, they just kind of go away. And now you have uh, the resistance of a belligerent, rebellious enemy of God. And that's what you've got to attack. If I bring in someone else in the room, so if I'm training a priest, for example, who has been assigned by his bishop to be an exorcist and he's apprenticing, I can expect to see more extraordinary signs because now the devil's got a brand new audience and he cracks his knuckles and, and, and wants to display what he wants in order to get into the mind and the heart of this new person. This is the very thing that we uh, that, that that we seek to resist. And this is the very thing that I'm going to brief that individual on before we enter into the room. This is what you probably are going to see. Um, and you you just have to imagine as you experience these things, imagine this is the 289th time that you're seeing this and let that guide what, how you would behave when that happens. Father Morth said, the devil is already causing us as much harm as he's allowed to do. It is false, he says, to believe that if I leave him alone, he will leave me alone. It's not only false, it's a betrayal of our priestly ministry, which should be directed solely at leading souls to God, even by removing them from Satan's power if necessary. So what does he mean there? What's the danger of believing the devil will leave me alone if I leave him alone? There's a couple of elements there. One is that there, within humans, there is a natural repulsion by the devil. There's a natural fear, and that fear is, is, is healthy, right? I think it would be unhealthy to be, uh, to be, to have no anxiety about encountering the devil at all. I, I, I think that would be, we, I think we would call that arrogance. Nevertheless, we are soldiers of Christ. All of us priests, all of us Christians, we are in fact. And so we have to expect that we're going to engage in spiritual warfare at a certain point. In other words, there has to be a grace-filled limit to our fear of the devil. Right? There has to be that. And and because if there if that isn't there, then we're ceding too much to the devil. We're giving him too much real estate within our mind and in our hearts. And, and what to phrase it in a different way, you know, we're limiting our faith in God, which is which his presence is in us, and we're limiting that very thing by granting too much to the devil. So it's 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 a detriment to our very selves. To, to, to be afraid of the devil in such a way that we never want to encounter him or engage him on a spiritual level. So it's good and healthy to engage in proper spiritual warfare, warfare. And so that means when we encounter something evil, we pray, Lord, 
limit the power of the evil one here. We, we educate and teach people on the devil. Uh, we have to do this, uh, even at the risk of, of sounding like we believe in, in something make-believe uh, from, a, from a bygone age. And, and I tell you, there, there's a story in the book of Father Amorth encountering a cardinal and being present in his office. And the, the, the cardinal himself believes that, that this, these are the stories of the devil. They're all fairy tales. In other words, he is denying what the gospel presents us. He, he's, he's denying the, the encounters that Jesus uh, had with demons as, as make-believe. Well, of course, the problem is if, if you think any part of the Bible is make-believe, then the entire thing has to be distrusted because at, at the heart of it, the word of God contains lies. And, and if that's the case, we can't trust it at all. Right. And so, so here's somebody who is operating at the highest level of the church, one, occupying one of the offices with the most authority. And he doesn't believe one of the basic tenets of the faith. That is the fact that uh, the prince of darkness exists and it, he has minions beneath him called demons. And they're working to build a kingdom in order to, to, to usurp God's sovereignty. And he wants you and me to be the, the vassals of his kingdom. He's working to destroy God's plan of salvation for you and for me. Amazing, Father. When you were speaking there, I couldn't help thinking of the movie Nefarious. When the priest comes in and immediately the, de the devil possessing the, the possessed person is like so afraid you know, uh, why have you come to destroy me or whatever, son of, son of, son of God. And then the priest presents, just as you said, oh, we, we, you know, we don't believe in that anymore. Um, and then the devil's all sorts of comfortable with him. Oh, come on in. I should have had you in earlier. Fascinating. Um, you know, that, but that, that was great. You know, and, and that point in the movie, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I know the, I've, I've gotten to know and, and to befriend the, the, the two writers who were also the two directors of the movie. Uh, and this, it, it was a completely spontaneous thing, but it was something that the, the actor who played Nefarious, uh, who played the possessed man, Sean Patrick Flannery, an idea he had when the priest came in and, and he recoiled at the presence of the priest, he actually turned two locks of his hair into points so that they look like horns. He flexes his muscle in terms of his appearance, so to speak. When the priest denies the existence of the devil, when he thinks that evil is just a matter of, of, of a psychological aberration, when you look at Sean Patrick in the next scene, his hair is flat. He doesn't need to flex now because this, this, so this is something that is, uh, it's, it's, it's not advertised, so to speak, in the movie, but if you look for it, you can see it. It's one of the hidden gems that they put within the movie. The thing that's interesting about that quote from scriptures, you know, you know, when, when the demon says to the Lord, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? What the devil informs us there is God always retains his sovereignty. So, so the Lord has put down his rules for reality, which apply also to the devil and his demons. And, and they are assured 
of an eternal condemnation. And it's coming to a point where his time is getting short, but they know he has the authority to change the rule at any time. They, they were given a date and a time of their destruction, and they know that it can be moved. And at that point, they, they were scared out of their skins, so to speak, if we can speak this way, that God has changed the date. All right, so this goes to show you the devil there is one of the greatest evangelists in that he proclaims the power of God. And I think in Exorcist is the best person to answer it, but why is the devil allowed to harm us in the first place? Why does God permit evil? And, you know, St. Augustine, he gives us the answer uh, that the church has held up perennially, and that is uh, he fits in God's plan in order to bring about greater good. In other words, the end state of affairs, when all is said and done, when time comes to a close, it will have been better. There will be a better end result because of the fact that there was evil, that there was pain and suffering than if there weren't. That God in his wisdom and his majesty has ordained this to be the way by which we come into eternal communion with him. Uh, because, you know, otherwise, if, if we don't believe this, then God would even be more cruel than the devil because he's allowed us to be exposed to something that is just pure destruction. But it's not pure destruction. The devil has a place in God's plan and God is using him, even though the devil, who, because of his tremendous angelic intellect, uh, he should know better uh, and, and in fact does see better. He spends an incredible amount of energy trying to usurp God's plan and fails at every corner. He doesn't change his course. And this is part of, of what even St. Thomas Aquinas, the church, the greatest theologian in the history of the church said, there is a mystery to evil. In, in the end, there's something so irrational about it that the, the mind simply cannot penetrate it enough to understand it. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. Bishop Strickland came to LA to react to the LA Dodgers just honoring the most anti-Catholic demonic hate group, if you will, anti-Christ hate group, like it just horrific. But because they were doing that, because the devil sort of reveled in that horrific display, it, there was like 5,000 Catholics praying, processing with uh, the bishop, uh, you know, Bishop Strickland, with a relic of John Paul II. It was so beautiful. It was so moving. None of that would have happened if they didn't do this demonic thing. So just amazing. And there may be people having been converted out of that. Uh, that the, the the grace of the action 
uh, produces produces grace. The, the action itself produces and diffuses a grace that th simply through the sacrifice done by those people who did that, God releases something that he wouldn't have done that can bring about the conversion of, of many of those people uh, who participated in that or even who on TV were are just mesmerized and edified by that witness. And I, I encounter things like that when I go um, when I do the missions I do all over the world, I'll encounter a seminarian, for example, uh, who's in his first year or second year, and, and I ask him, you know, how did you how did you get your call? And gosh, so many of them say, you know, I was living a life of evil. I was fornicating. I was viewing internet pornography. I was using drugs, and I saw somebody do a heroic act a kind act looking like a fool, for example, praying a rosary in public or being, being made fun of as they walked along the street, somebody who was obviously religious, for example, a sister or maybe a religious brother in habit and, and even being spat on and responded with simply a smile. And that moved the heart of that individual and, and, and broke through the shackles that you know, listening to 10,000 sermons may not have, but that single act, that small act of heroism changed his heart. It released a grace in him that pulled him out of one kingdom and into another. Also in the book, we have, there's a title, uh, excuse me, a chapter titled, His Eminence Does Not Believe in Satan. That's the one you referred to. And that cardinal who you said did not believe, how about that in the church today. So this is way back. Do you think that over the last now almost 50 years that has remained the same, increased or decreased? I do have to say it's decreasing simply because uh, the ones who are like that cardinal and don't believe uh, God's biological solution is taking effect. In other words, they're dying. Right. And so when you look at the church and who makes up the church now, when you, for example, you, you look at in the, the seminarians that have joined the church in the last, let's say, 20 years, they are different than the ones that joined starting, say, 40 years ago. Right. So looking at the past 40 years, the first 20 years of that. So men who joined the priesthood beginning in the 1980s and all through the 90s. And then the ones that have that that joined after, you're talking about two different types of people. Uh, so the ones today, they believe in God, they believe in the devil, they have a devotion to Our Lady. Everything that the Church professes in the creed, they believe. I, I, it has been beyond two decades where I've encountered a seminarian who doesn't believe an article of the faith that the church proposes to be definitive and believed by all, right? So it just, so that's different. In the first group, um, what you often encountered in, and, and I, I hear I hear bishops, I hear other priests talk about it, like, hey, what went through your mind when you wanted to, when you, when you became a priest? Well, I wanted to help people. So I wanted to be a source of kindness, uh, a source of encouragement to them. And there's nothing wrong with these things. But the belief of the church became secondary. And you could, you, many just kind of picked and choose what they bought in and they modified the teaching accordingly in their ministry. 
that doesn't occur anymore, right? So is that a grace? Was that an effect of John Paul II and, and, and Benedict XVI who worked very hard to reform the seminaries or maybe a bit of both, but we're in a different place here now. So, uh, so that age, that, that, that generation that didn't believe in the devil, they're dying out and they're not being replaced. So we are becoming in a better place. I would credit also Satan with some of that. The horror of the priestly sexual abuse scandal has made, and it's it's revelation, has made the becoming a priest much more difficult because it's no longer regarded as, by the public that is, as something great and wonderful. In fact, a lot of priests wonder if they should wear their clerics out in public because of being called horrific names. So the decision to become a priest is no longer about, well, it's a nice job and I'll, I'll get to do lots of nice things and I'll be able to help the poor and encourage people. You'd also have to come from a real faith, a commitment to this thing unto death. So Satan, for all his horror and that, that situation of the abuse scandals is a horror and satanic, then I think that's also played a role in terms of cleaning things up. The priesthood does not have the prestige that it used to have, that's for sure. And, you know, another factor that's there is, you know, most of the, most of the abuse has been caused by uh, homosexuality in the priesthood, right? So, uh, so most of the abuse has not been done by uh, what psychology defines as true pedophiles. Uh, it's, they've been acts of homosexuality done by priests on, on post-pubescent youth. Right? So this is by definition homosexuality rather than pedo pedophilia. Today, if, if a homosexual doesn't need to become a priest in order to live an unquestioned single life, uh, or actually on the contrary, today, um, gays are, are socially permitted, um, societally uh, permitted to marry one another. So whereas the priesthood was a refuge before, that prevented questions of like, hey, how come I never see you dating? How come you don't you aren't married yet with a wife? It's not that anymore. It's not it's not the refuge that it once was. So all of these things are contributing to a cleaning, uh, a cleaning up of the priesthood. The one similarity or the one place in which I think it's gotten much worse is that that older generation now all find themselves among the hierarchy. That's why the stunning revelation from Germany was so severe. The vote in Germany of the bishops with regard to allowing for homosexual blessings, which is homosexual blessings in churches, which is completely against the teaching of the church. The vote was 38 to 8. 38 bishops in favor, 8 bishops opposed. And there was 11 abstentions, but that doesn't even matter. That's just stunning. I find myself without words as to why uh, the, the church in Rome, which, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the job of the Holy Father is to strengthen and confirm the brethren is to, he is the visible source of unity in the church. Well, there's a horrific source of disunity, a cavity beginning in Germany. And why is this permitted to go on? I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. I, I don't know what to say about that, but, but 
that that clearly is an instance of evil. It is an anti-gospel that is being presented. It, uh, one can't call it anything other than that. This is at variance with the Word of God. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, 16 to 20, Christ says, By their fruits you shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and the evil tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can an evil tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be cut down and shall be cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. How can we apply this then to our own lives and to our approach to the Catholic Church and her members? We have to always, as, as Christians, we have to be examining our lives for what needs pruning, for what is not aiding us in our journey to heaven and what in fact is bringing us down. And look, it, it's really easy to get caught up in the bad fruits of the world. Uh, you know, uh, I, I decided, for example, years ago that I needed to give up movies. Uh, why? Because, you know, turn on a movie today, find, find me a movie that doesn't have a blasphemy other than it, where, where God's name is not used disrespectfully. And, you know, uh, you have a name, I have a name, God is his name. And so in the Old Testament, when his name was disrespected, the punishment was death because the disrespecting of God's name is a literal attack on him. And that is, by definition, a repeating of the rebellion of Satan, right? It is a participation in that original demonic rebellion. So it brings a curse, not only upon the individual, but but upon the place where that was uttered. The demons rush in. So the penalty for that action was death. Today, uh, we, we don't stone people for uttering a blasphemy, but we certainly don't respond to it in the way that we ought to. And so for me, I mean, who doesn't love a good movie? But I had to sacrifice the good that was present in it because of the bad that that is concomitant with it. And you know what? Uh, my life is the better for it. And, and it's not just blasphemy, but just themes that are detestable, uh, things that are just unbecoming of, of a Christian to watch. And we may appreciate the relaxation and the, the recreation that watching a movie gives us. But if we have a dichotomy within ourselves, so we have uh, one self that is trying to build holiness and trying to be faithful to God, build a prayer life, uh, turn away from sin and so forth. And we have this other part where we suspend the former in view of the latter. We have a fissure within ourselves, right? We're not, we're not going to get holy by by having this this kind of fissure. I had to make a decision like that. What the Word of God calls us to do is to make sacrifices where we need to in our lives in order to become holy. Uh, so that sacrificial dimension of the Christian life is always operative. You know, there's a line, and I, the reference for which I, escapes me right now, there's a line in uh, one of the one of the Psalms in the Old Testament, uh, and it goes, as you behold, so you will glow. Whatever you set your eyes on, whatever you look at and observe, 
the glow of that thing is going to be upon you. If you're looking at ugly things, blasphemous things, immoral things, that's the glow that you're going to cast. That That's the holiness that you're pursuing and the holiness that's going to stick to you. Father Amarth was known for many, many things. One of the things that happened even in later years, uh, closing near the closing of his life, but changing of the prayers of exorcism from the Latin into the vernacular, changing of the holy water, if you will, to just blessed water from exorcism water. He had some very strong opinions about that. Can you explain what his opinions were and, and why he would have that? At the Second Vatican Council, it called for a reform of the all of the rituals and liturgies of the church. So the very last ritual to be reformed was the rite of exorcism, which occurred in 1999. And that was done under the supervision of Cardinal Estevez, who was a liturgist, had never performed an exorcism in his life. And so what you have is somebody who has no practical expertise in an area trying to interpret it in himself and understand it and then give that interpretation to the world. Well, this is a very practical craft. And so if you don't consult exorcists, the men that are actually doing that craft, then the probability that you're going to get something wrong is going to be high. And, and guess what happened? Uh, because what, what occurred, among other things, is they changed this ritual, which is very much a confrontation with evil, right? So where um, th there's an alternation in the original rite of exorcism between uh, praying to God, asking for his intervention um, in the exorcist, but in the situation as well, and then an attack of the demon, uh, a visceral attack using language that was abusive. You know, you hear the, I adjure you ancient serpent, ancient liar, cunning fiend. Uh, I May you be struck in hell along with your venomous poison. Those abuses, that abusive language wounds the devil. Much of that was removed in the revised rite. And the revised rite became not so much a confrontation but a liturgy where one begins, it almost looks like a kind of almost a mass, if you will, without a consecration. It begins in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. And so what? how do you think the devil is going to respond when, when the priest says the Lord be with you? He's going to say something distasteful, crude, and horrific. And, and this is the reality in the, in the revised rite of, of exorcism. Much of its guts were usurped. Uh, so I'm not going to say that it's not effective at all. Um, but the vast majority of exorcists, and I'm at a meeting of them right now. This is where I am. Uh, there's, there, I personally don't know a single one that uses the revised rite. They use the traditional rite, the rite that was first composed in the year 1614, which has the muscle that you want to use in the right. I, I again, it, not to say that none of them have ever used the revised right. I have used it. I just have not found the same kind of of success that uh, that the traditional right uh, gives us. You know, one of the final sections in the revised right 
is the exorcist out loud thanks the Lord for liberating this victim of the presence of the devil. And at that point, if the devil is still there, how do you think he's going to respond? I'm still here along with uh, some abusive language towards the exorcist, calling the exorcist himself a liar. And yet this is what is printed in the ritual, a thanking of the Lord for liberating this person. But guess what? The person was not liberated. Uh, most, most possession cases, in my experience and that of my colleagues, uh, require something in the neighborhood of 75 exorcisms. So if, if someone is being exorcised once a week, it requires a year and a half. Here you have someone with zero experience thinking that, okay, this is just going to be uh, super quick and almost magical, whereby we just pronounce these words, the devil's going to magically leave, and n- none of us are going to be late for dinner as a result. And this just this is just not the case. And what about holy water? He, he said something interesting about holy water too. I don't know that many people know the difference. Uh, what is the difference? What happened there? In the church, there are many kinds of holy water. Uh, there's Easter water, the water that we, we, we blessed at, at the Easter vigil. Uh, there's epiphany water, water that is blessed on the solemnity of the epiphany. Uh, we have uh, d- different formulas of holy water that that are blessed accord- on, on a particular saint's day or in a particular manner according uh, to a devotion to a saint. All of them are effective. Um, you know, people ask, well, which is more powerful? I, I, I don't know that we can really speak this way. Uh, they're all holy waters. They all repel evil. Uh, they all uh, give God's blessing. Uh, but the waters each affect what is prayed into them. So for exorcism, we use a particular holy water that is in the old ritual of 1614. And um, so what occurs? First, you start with exorcising salt. All right, so the first words are God's creature salt. I cast out the devil from you. And why why would salt need exercising? Why would anything, why would an inanimate object need exercising? Because at the fall of Adam, the devil became the prince of the world. The world is under his dominion. So the exorcist is removing the dominion of the devil from the salt. What after he exercises it, which is a good solid paragraph, then he blesses the salt. The next thing he does is he exercises the water, good solid page, and then he blesses it. Then he mixes the two elements and he blesses the mixture, right? So why salt and water? Well, because both of them have cleansing properties in the natural realm. And these, the word of God has identified, they have cleansing properties in the spiritual realm. So in the formula of making that water, we pray into, the, the exorcist prays into the, the elements, what he wants them to achieve. So, um, you know, um, he says, wherever this water is sprinkled, may there be peace in the homes of the faithful, may the wickedness of the foul fiend be cast away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Such that when the holy water is sprinkled and wherever it is sprinkled, that effect is accomplished. And it's a powerful effect. Uh, so in the old ritual, the priest would 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 tif- typically use it to bless a great amount of holy water. That is the holy water that would be placed in the tank that people at 
that, that people at church could take home, sprinkle in their homes. And guess what? The priest doesn't have to be present in their homes. The very fact that the faithful are spreading it, that effect is occurring in their homes. This is the holy water that is typically used in exorcism. So what happens? Well, <laughs> in the new rite of exorcism, uh, they include the option of producing holy water right in the very ritual itself. Well, what's the problem with that? You're introducing something that really should have been done prior because exorcism is a confrontation with evil. So you're having somebody who doesn't want to be present at a liturgy and who's going to be as belligerent as possible as it's happening, be right front and center as a, as a main character when the scene is happening. So you're introducing, you're, you're casting pearls before the swine in the most literal way. The effect of the holy water in an exorcism. What have you seen of that? Oh, it's a visceral effect. Visceral. Uh, the devil will always recoil. And, a, and if he's being belligerent, a splash of the holy water on the face always stops that. In fact, my laypersons that I will employ in, in an exorcism, all of them have their own bottles of holy water, such that uh, in the midst of their praying, if a belligerence happens, uh, they already know what to do. So they don't have to be guided in it. So they're, uh, they, they serve as additional hands and arms for me. I know everybody's going to be wondering, so might as well just explain it. What do you mean lay people at an exorcism? What, what's that all about? Aren't you just there with the victim just by himself? How's that go? So you need other persons there. First of all, you need holders to hold down the victim because the devil is going to attack you uh, otherwise. Um, you need people that are, that are interceding there. Right? You're picking people that have a holiness. Uh, they, have a, they have a faith and a holiness, a lived, a lived faith. Uh, you want those people in the room because their prayers are going to help you, and those prayers are caustic to the devil. Uh, you may have a nurse or doctor, a medical expert there in the room, um, and you have just other people uh, there that that are an extension of you, your hands and your arms, so so that they are handing you something you might need, a crucifix at this point, or a relic of a saint. Or on their even on their own initiative, uh, sprinkling holy water upon the victim in order as a response to something that the devil is doing. Uh, so this aids you because really exorcism is an act by the church, and these people here are representative of the church. They're the fingertips of the church, so to speak, in this act of liberation. Can you tell me a little bit about Father Amorth? in your sort of relationship with him, his, what he meant to you, how he might have inspired you? Father Amorth, I, I never did get a chance to meet him, but we, we certainly ran um, in the same circles in the sense that his teacher, uh, who was Father Candito Amantini, he was a passionist priest who operated out of the Scala Santa Church, the Church of the Holy Stairs uh, in Rome, which is across the street from St. John Lateran Archbasilica. So the Church of the Holy Stairs contains the steps that went up to Pontius Pilate's Praetorium in Jerusalem, meaning those are the steps that our Lord had to walk up and down. So Helen, Constantine's mother, removed them and sent them to Rome, and Constantine erected a basilica around them. Beneath those stairs, uh, in, in, in the basement, so to speak, or, the, or the, the crypt, 
is where Father Candido used to conduct his exorcisms. I, 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 I conducted them there myself. Candido was Father Gabriel's teacher. And right? so Father Candido was the one who taught uh, Father Gabriel and, and Father Gabriel succeeded him in the ministry. So uh, what I found especially good in this book is how Father Amorth talks about how he was taught, what he was told to zero in on, what he was told to avoid. And so I, I had never encountered another resource where he's being given the lessons against the demonic. And they are lessons that are that are worthwhile for all of us. Uh, and so that appears, that's essentially the last third of the book. So I found that particular part quite edifying. Father Candido uh, was an immensely holy man, and his cause for canonization is well underway. Uh, in fact, he's reached the status of venerable, and his body has been moved inside the basilica, the, inside the, the Scala Santa Basilica itself. So that is an, an, an immense nod of approval by the Universal Church when that occurs. Father, thank you so very much. Pick up this book for an inside view of, of the life of an exorcist, what it really means, The Battle with the Devil, Incredibles, available from 10 books, the official biography of Father Gabriel Amor. Thank you so much for being with us, Father. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.